Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Hey, it's Richard. And if you've just stumbled on us, How Do We Fix It is the independent news and politics show with solutions for America and the planet. Instead of complaints and name-calling, fixes. This week, with the terrible floods in Houston and other parts of Texas, as well as the Gulf Coast, we're looking again at climate change. This show is for skeptics. Even if you don't believe global warming could cause disastrous changes in the weather, there's little doubt that the unusually warm waters in the Gulf of Mexico made Hurricane Harvey even worse. Our guest is Austrian-American economist Gernot Wagner, co-director of the Solar Geoengineering Research Program at Harvard University. He's co-author of the book Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet. Our co-host, Jim Meggs, is away this week. He's climbing and hiking in the West. Jim and I spoke with Gernot for an earlier episode. Gernot says scientists have known about the link between carbon dioxide and climate change for a very long time. 1896. Literally, 19th century science was when we figured out that adding CO2 into the atmosphere warms global average temperatures by a certain amount. Uh, The greenhouse effect is what makes life worth living on this planet, what makes life possible on this planet. So that said, the what we know has proven to be not nearly enough to prompt us to action. And this is where we go to the right, known unknowns or yeah. the yeah. unknowables for that matter. Right, right. The black swan. There uh, we go. Risk. Yes. So as uh, somebody who spends a lot of time on the more conservative side of the, the, the blogosphere and, and yeah, You media, have a lot to answer for. <laughs> so I'm exposed to a lot of climate skeptics. And, and I, I don't agree with them, but I, I do have a little bit of a sympathy for how they got to their position. But we'll come back to that. But one of the things that you often hear from climate skeptics that to me is a real fallacy is, well, nobody can say for sure what's going to happen. Therefore, why should we do anything? Therefore, I'm sure nothing's going to happen. You don't have to know exactly how much CO2 forces global warming to at least worry about it. I mean, the idea that you can be confident that we can dump tons of CO2 in the atmosphere and nothing's going to happen. I mean, that's the one outcome that just defies any kind of logic. Exactly. Right. I mean, and this is where we are immediately with the insurance analogy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you get car insurance because you hope that (laughs) you will have to use it, right? You get car insurance just in case. So unless we act, we will experience 
major disruptions. We're already experiencing them, right? Right. Now, a lot of this comes down to just what is the factor by which we think CO2 drives warming? Walk us through the range of possible outcomes from the relatively benign case to the 10% most severe case. The most significant link here is between CO2 in the atmosphere, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and eventual global average warming. That's called climate sensitivity. Okay, and CO2 is is carbon, the amount of carbon in the Earth's atmosphere. Carbon dioxide, exactly. We know we are increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's not a secret, right? There's no... There's no opinion about this. Those are the facts. We can measure that. Yeah, and, and, and it was, what, 280 parts per million before, before the industrialization started back exactly. in the 18th century? Yes. Okay, and now we're up to what? We are up to 400. Okay. So we've already increased those levels by about 40%. Now, global average temperatures have already warmed by about 08 degrees centigrade. So so you're an Austrian, so you, so you say centigrade. So I guess I'm not American on that one, yes, right? So I believe... So, so what is it, 2.2 uh, or... A degree and a half, basically, okay. right? On average. Now, turns out that's the global average. Bad news for your beachfront property. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've already experienced this. This is hitting home already. This is standard economics. There's no spin involved here. I mean, this is, this is economics 101, right? This is How Do We Fix It? We're talking about climate change. More with economist Gernot Wagner coming up. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In your book, Climate Shock, which is a really good read and highly easy readable. to get through. Yeah, yeah, really readable. And gosh, there are a lot of there are a lot of notes for anybody who's a skeptic in the back. Yeah. Um, in this book, you talk about the bathtub. Yep. Why is that something that we should be thoroughly depressed about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you shouldn't necessarily be depressed about your own personal bathtub, but here's the analogy. We are adding CO2 to the atmosphere. That's the flow of water into the tub. If you stabilize the flow of water in, you are still going to have that tub overflow. Why? Uh, Because the water levels keep rising. Because it's not flowing out. (laughs) It's not flowing out as fast as it's flowing in. And what you need to do is get these emissions down to zero in order to get the water level stabilized and eventually, hopefully, get that water level down from where we are today, from the 400 parts per million to 350, 300, and even below. Because it takes a very long time for carbon dioxide to disappear. Exactly. All right. So, I mean, until very, very recently, right, for the mathematically inclined, the increase in the increase was still increasing, Right? The water levels are increasing at an increasing rate, and that increasing rate was increasing. Uh, now, here's the hopeful news. 
turns out last year, for the very first time ever, emissions stabilized without an economic recession. So the increase in the increase is no longer increasing. Mm -hmm. Now that said, back to the bathtub, the water is still rising. The CO2. The CO2 is still rising, right? Emissions levels now are stable, and of course they ought to be and come down, but they are not yet down to zero, right? We are still adding CO2 to the atmosphere. The only way of avoiding the tub from overflowing is to turn off the spigot, right? Turn off the inflow entirely, decrease emissions down to zero, and then right, basically open the, open the sink. In this country, we have a huge debate about whether there really is man-made climate change. Yep. Okay. Complete bogus debate, right? <laughs> but right. Yes, but yeah. among scientists, among yep. climate scientists, is there any debate at all among <laughs> the experts? Well, if you lived in the 19th century, I'm, I'm sure there was, but no, not, not at this point. So the only debate is over the extent of the threat. Exactly. Did you go to the climate march? I the, skipped the, it because I was stuck in an office. <laughs> I, I did. You had the U.S. Socialist Party, the mm-hmm. U.S. Communist Party, the Maoist Party. You, you know, <laughs> you had every wacko far left group in the world out there saying capitalism causes climate change. We need to destroy capitalism to solve the problem. So for people who like free, you don't have to be conservative, just mainstream. People who like the free market. People who like free markets think free markets reduce poverty and make life better. Yep. They look at this and they see a bunch of people grabbing onto the issue of climate change who always wanted the government to completely take over the economy. (laughs) Now all of a sudden they have a new argument. It used to be workers' rights or other things. So the left has taken over this. That freaks out people on the right. And I think just as it should, (laughs) you know, and so when we pivot in the show to solutions, how do we convince uh, people who like free markets that we can do something about CO2 emissions without it actually becoming sort of a surreptitious way of reengineering the economy in the way that that the far left has always wanted with the government takeover of property and and huge reductions in individual rights? Yep. That's the completely wrong answer. What do we need to do this? Well, we need new technologies. We need more energy-efficient technologies. How do you get them? Not by going back to the caves. So what you need to do is essentially rechannel market forces from this right, high-carbon, low-efficiency path we are currently on, and we are, to a low-carbon, high-efficiency one. And how do you do that? Well, you set the right incentives, and then you get out of the way. It's not the bureaucrats in Washington who will invent the future on this one. They will set the right incentives by pricing CO2. But then it's Silicon Valley, frankly, that's going to do this for the rest of us. So, so, so walk us through that, the idea of pricing carbon. Because at the moment, you say, and you say this in, in your book, Climate Shock, that, we, that carbon is actually subsidized. <laughs> it the, is. The, yeah. and, and, and you want to reverse that. I mean, we are not even getting the sign right on this one, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, f- the arrow is the wrong way. Forget what the right number is supposed to be, right? So we are subsidizing fossil fuels to the tune of half a trillion dollars a year, right? Trillion here, trillion there, soon enough you're talking about real money. Half a trillion bucks. So on average, that's a subsidy for each ton of CO2 emitted globally of $15 per ton. What do we need to do? Well, we need to do the exact opposite. We need to price CO2. And no, it's not about sticking it to the man, right? It's about sticking it to CO2. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, the, the, the logic couldn't be more compelling, right? So look, every time I board a plane, 
I go from JFK to San Francisco and back. Mm -hmm. That causes one ton of CO2 emissions. I think a lot of people would be shocked to find out, in a sense, how heavy CO2 is. You know what I mean? You think it's just one plane ride. How could it be a ton of CO2? Yeah. Well, by the way, it's not the plane. It's you personally. Right. It's your personal contribution by flying across the country. Average American has 20 tons of CO2. Average European, 10. I'm a dual citizen, so I get 30. Um, but, I mean, basically, right, it's each of these flights, one ton of CO2. Now, right. I pay for the ticket, and I get the benefit of going there. Now, who pays for the cost of the damage that my one ton of CO2 will be causing? Everybody else, all 7 billion of us, so, so are paying this, for my privilege to go there. So this is what economists call an externality. Exactly. Uh, that's the, right, it's a negative externality, a negative spillover, if you will, to use sort of a, a less ner- nerdy term. Uh, but, well, who pays for their costs? Well, it turns out we socialize these costs. Mm-hmm. So this is back to your question, Jim, about uh, capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So what we do right now, well, we privatize the benefits. I get the benefit of flying to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. For a relatively um, cheap price. Exactly, right? Uh, now, we socialize the costs. Right, right. We don't, in fact, live in a capitalist system in that sense. So when we look at these externalities, then the challenge becomes – how do you find a fair way to, for everybody to share the cost? But first, got to convince them <laughs> that this doesn't look like a cost to a lot of people. They get to drive cars and fly in planes and heat their houses. The costs seem quite hypothetical to people right now. Unfortunately, they are, right? I mean, yeah. frankly, this is why climate change is the perfect problem, if you will. Because the, 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 the risk of a disaster is beyond my lifetime. Well, it's more long-term right, than most problems. It's more global, global warming, right, than most problems. It's more irreversible in the sense that right, the kind of stuff we do today mm-hmm. causes stuff that can't be changed hundreds of years from now right. when it sort of hits home, right? Irreversible. And yeah, it's more uncertain than most problems, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so let's look at solutions. Now, one thing we've talked about is pricing carbon, either through a carbon tax, which is actually what your co-author wants, or cap and trade, um, which is a form of carbon trading that I believe you're in favor of. But the idea is to, is to tax carbon. Let's, let's look at some other things as well as, as taxing carbon. What is the role that can be played by renewable energy, by green energy? Because we've had a real change in literally the last few years, for instance, in the price of solar panels. It's much cheaper to get a solar panel and pop it on your roof than it used to be. I mean, much cheaper is a, is a slight uh, understatement here. So it turns out the cost of solar decreased 80% the last five years. Eight zero. Eight zero. exactly. That is huge, right? It already pays to look at these alternatives, the low-carbon, high-efficiency world we all like to, to live in. Uh, now, what does a price on CO2 do? Well, it encourages that even more so. So this is back to this first best economist stance of saying, let's price CO2 and get out of the way. And then, well, in some sense, whatever comes up, right, whatever is the most cost-effective solution to decrease CO2 emissions. And frankly, it does turn out that just based on pure economics, this is not about liking one versus the other, pure economics, solar has decreased in price by 80% and by now has, in many areas, achieved sort of the holy grail of great parity, i.e. it is cheaper than 
any alternative out there. Cheaper and than oil, cheaper than cheaper coal. Cheaper than oil, cheaper than coal, and, and cheaper than nuclear in this case, too. Let's look at individuals. What can we do? Now, you're a good environmentalist, right? I mean, tell I, me about your lifestyle. You don't even drive a car. I don't have a license. I, I couldn't drive one if I wanted to, turns out. And you walked to the studio today. <laughs> I did walk to the studio, yes. And um, you use a bicycle a lot. I do own a bike, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And, and you don't eat a lot of meat. Or I, any meat, I right? don't eat any meat, turns out. Yes, I'm vegetarian, right? And I carry around this sort of beat-up water bottle everywhere I go. And, okay, I live and breathe this stuff, right? This is my job. So I like to think me not driving or not eating meat does not, in fact, prevent me from then talking about the right things when it comes to pricing CO2 or doing sort of acting on the policy level. So the average person out there does not think about climate change 24-7. I hope not, right? It's pretty depressing most days of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we do this? I mean, let's say you're the, the political consulting company that's been hired to engineer the program to launch a global carbon pricing regimen. How do we do it? How do we sell it? But also, what does it look like? Well, so here's, here's the good news. No, this is not about changing the way we live, period. What it is is changing this devastating path we are on right now, this high-carbon, low-efficiency one, to a much, much better one. And turns out we can point to plenty of positive examples already of countries, states, that have a price of CO2, and right, newsflash, life goes on. Now talk about <laughs> the California example. So, for example, right, California, by some measures, the eighth largest economy in and of itself, right, has, in fact, a firm cap of greenhouse gas emissions, majority of, of its greenhouse gas emissions. There is a price on CO2 now and other greenhouse gases to the tune of like 12 or so dollars per ton of CO2. And, yeah, life goes on. So let's look, finally... At the takeaways from your book, um, are there a few things that you feel that people should hopefully, or you'd like people to learn from from what you've been doing here with this, with 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 climate shock? I mean, the, the main conclusion is what we know is bad and should have prompted us to act a long time ago, frankly. But what we don't know, the known unknowns or unknown unknowns, if you will, um, potentially much much worse. Right, so it's the stuff that we don't know that really ought to prompt us to action here. Gernot Wagner, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I didn't really know about this before I started podcasting, and that's the importance of downloading. And downloading is a really good thing if you find us, if you want to stay with us and your Wi-Fi coverage, your internet coverage isn't that good. If you download the show, you keep it on your smartphone. Right. Obviously, that makes it portable. And if you can subscribe to our channel, that's, that's great, too. Yeah, that really helps us. Thanks. So, Richard, this is a... First of all, fascinating conversation, it's something I've been thinking about and talking about my whole life, practically, and yet still a challenging one for me. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm always somebody who thinks that free markets are usually the best way to organize human activity. It's the best for the poor, creates the most opportunity, the most freedom, but there are some limits to that. The idea of a carbon tax makes huge economic sense. I do worry that, like any tax, it falls most heavily on working people. I used to be editor of Popular Mechanics. I know guys who drive pickups 40 miles to work in Montana. 
another extra 40 cents a gallon is means a lot to them. Can we really trust our government to implement a carbon tax in a way that really is revenue neutral? Will they really cut other taxes at the same amount? And are we um, do do we do we trust that? Yeah, that's that's a question. But does it mean that we should not act because we're worried that our policymakers may not act as fairly as they should? Right. You know, I mean, that's really a separate question. But what I'm trying to get at is I'm not a climate skeptic. But I have a little bit of sympathy for some of them. I think some are just profoundly anti-scientific. It's one thing to say there's some doubt here. It's another thing to say, like, I'm sure they don't know what they're talking about. Well, that's being sure just because the data is a little bit vague is not a scientific position. Well, personal disclosure, I'm passionately opposed to people who think there's no problem at all. And that's because of my wife. Uh, she works for the Environmental Defense Fund and uh, when it comes to looking at the environmental movement, it's easy to condemn some people way off on the left as being crazy. But Environmental Defense Fund, that I've, and I've learned this from my wife, very much a pragmatic organization that looks for answers in the free market as well as potentially regulation. Right. There, there's two types of env environmentalism to me. There's a pragmatic side that looks at what's happening and tries to find the most efficient way to fix it. That's like EDF. Then there's the romantic side like Bill McKibben and a lot of others, who imagine a, a past that was wonderful and agrarian and, and, and non-industrial, and, and there's this great nostalgia. It's almost like something from Rousseau uh, for this, this beautiful, untrammeled life that never really existed. No, and we have to remember that in the past 10 to 15 years, global capitalism the, the very thing that many people hate and are march against ha has brought down childhood uh, malnutrition. Poverty, yeah, has, disease. Has, <laughs> so I think that part of the argument, by no means the whole argument, but part of the argument that Gernot made this week is that capitalism, that, that the free market can be used to help. It's not the whole answer, but right. it can be used to help mitigate climate change. And I think he makes a really strong case that this is a problem unlike previous problems. You know, it used to be water pollution, air pollution. You could see the effects. You could smell it. You know, dead fish. It was very immediate and, and, and local. This is global. It's not at all immediate. A high, if you had a 10% risk of a plane crashing, you know, if somebody said that there's a 10% risk that somewhere in the United States today a plane is going to crash, no one would get on an airplane that day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's the strongest argument for doing something about climate uh, risk uh, reduction and insurance. Good show, Jim. All right. Well, listen, thanks for joining us. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies, the show produced by Miranda Schaefer, our engineer, Denise Barberita, at the wonderful, what do you say, Mona Lisa Studio? Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Davies Content. We make podcasts and digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 